This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. Hello, welcome. This is an interview with the Beautiful Writers Group. We are speaking today with the lovely literary agent, Laura York. That's York with an E at the end, Y-O-R-K-E. It's myself, Danielle Laporte, and Linda Severson. Off the top, we want to let you know where you can find Laura. She's at the Carol Mann Agency. So that's Carol with a C, C-A-R-O-L, Mann, double M, M-A-N-N, agency.com. And you know where to find Linda and I. We're at the beautifulwritersgroup.com. I'm at DanielleLaporte.com. Linda is always rocking it at BookMama.com. And if you've been around with us for a while, you know that we always start everything, everything with a blessing. So we're here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding here and now. And so it is. Linda, hello, Laura, hey. hello. hello. Hello, hello, Laura. Hi, guys. It's really nice to be here talking to you. We're so happy to have you all the way from Manhattan. So I'm going to tell everyone a little bit about you, Laura. So Danielle and I are bringing you Laura York because she's a book-obsessed soul sister. And like us, she delights in making magic happen for others. She loves to shortcut the process by which writers not only go from idea to done, but from obscurity to fame. She is a veteran book editor, publisher, literary agent, and writer who has published many bestsellers, including Maria Shriver, Mary Tyler Moore, and Jodi Picoult. She began her 25-year career at Simon & Schuster, where she worked as an editor at three different imprints before moving to Putnam. From there, she co-founded the Golden Books Adult Trade Division and then moved on to become the editor-at-large of Reagan Books slash HarperCollins. Laura is a native New Yorker. She graduated magna cum laude from Duke University. She's an avid and real deal horsewoman, having ridden and competed all of her life so that when my horse Dandy acts like a total jackass and throws me off like he did yesterday, it is not uncommon for me to call Laura crying or laughing. For her wise horsey counsel, the only reason I didn't call you yesterday, Laura, when I was crying, was because you've just been a little busy lately. We won't get into what you've just gone through, so I didn't really want to bother you with that one. And lastly, as a literary agent as well as a freelance editor, Laura's client roster is really impressive, including, I'm happy to say, many books for my Carmel clients, including our New York Times bestselling Janice McLeod of Paris Letter fame, of which, you know, we've interviewed her so they know her. 
and several members of the Obama cabinet. Occasionally, Laura and I disagree, but most of the time, I know that if I love a book, she will too. And I think that might be because we share the same birthday, although Laura is much, much, much older than me, having been born the year before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got to wish her the big happy birthday too, you know, it happens. <laughs> the big five oh, yeah, you hit it the year before I did. Yikes. Okay, I'm still five oh, so you're still much, much older than I am. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm going on to five two pretty soon, babe. So oh, there you go. Lord. Well you'll oh. be five one, so there you go. <laughs> See, all right, all right oldies. Let's, enough with the old talk. Um, Thanks. Okay, we're gonna start with it like super practical. This is what everybody wants to know. Typical day. And I think if you can add into this that it's important that you are in New York. There's a reason a lot of hot Asians come out of and work out of New York. So typical day in the life of Laura York, York with an E, agent at large. Well, I'm very happy to answer that. My day is atypical of many agents because I was an editor for so long. I spend a lot of it editing my clients' work to a degree that others don't. But the reason I am in New York, other than having grown up and living here, is because all the publishers are here. Not all, but I would say 90% of them, okay? And it just is a lot better if you are an agent to be here because you have lunches with editors from the publishing houses and meetings with those editors all the time. And you're at a disadvantage as an agent if the best you can do is a phone call. That's not bad because in this day and age, you know, frankly, Email is the way we all communicate about everything. In fact, when I auction a book, the auction now is run through email, not through phone calls. But on a typical day, I will see an editor for coffee or a lunch or something of that nature because I'm in the city. And the rest of the time, I'm emailing with editors and authors and editing. And that's a typical day. Hey, I have a question about the auction being through email now. So obviously, that wasn't always that way. Does that change anything? Like for better, for worse, because it's all done with email now? You're not getting on the phone hustling all day? It doesn't really, because what is so important about this industry, and still is, which again leads to being in New York, is it is a relationship business. It absolutely is. But by the time you're in an auction, you're not smoothing anybody. You're not saying, oh, can't you do better? I mean, even in the days when we were doing it on the phone, by the time the editor or the publisher is calling with a dollar amount, you're done convincing them of whatever you're going to convince them. So it really doesn't Mm -hmm. matter that we're working with emails because the other thing is auctions, which are fewer and farther between these days, and you're grateful if you get one offer, much less a bunch, but auctions are great because they're competitive, and it's the competitive juices among the publishers, not having to do with me. So once you're like, okay, the highest bid was... $20,000, the highest bid was $200,000, whatever it is, and you go back to the other publishers, it gets their juices going, and it's out of your hands anyway. Well, and also, Mm -hmm. Laura, if you're doing the auction by email, we should explain that you've preceded that many times with in-person meetings. Like when you took our member, Steph Jagger, who I just got to hang out with in San Diego. Man, is she funny as hell. I mean, I knew she was funny. Oh, my God. God, it was so great spending the afternoon with her. She is hilarious. So you all had gone through three or four in-person meetings before that 
auction ever started, and you actually kind of, oh, actually, you pre- it was preempted, right? You knew yes. verbally somebody in one of those meetings gave you the awareness that they were going to try to preempt it and take it off the table. Is that the case? Yes. No, I'll tell you a little bit about the auction situation. When you have meetings, the book often goes to auction, which is what you want, and you don't have meetings with publishers unless it's going to be a big book, unless okay. it's going to be, you know, probably a six-figure book. And Steph's book was very, 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 very much a six-figure book. And, in fact, somebody responded to it so quickly from when I sent it that we initially had nine meetings because, again, publishers scramble. So when I send out an email saying, I've got serious interest in this, do you want a meeting? A lot of people said, oh, my God, yes. Before they'd had a chance, the editors, to bring the meeting, the book, to their editorial board, okay, the proposal, which is their publisher, their director of sales, their director of publicity, other editors, and all those people weigh in on whether or not the imprint should go ahead and make an offer on the book. Unfortunately, it's not just up to the one editor who may love it, because if the publisher suits it down or the director of sales, there's nothing that the editor can do. So in this case... We started out with nine meetings, and when the editors went to their editorial boards, that came down to, I think, five meetings. And we went around, and I, from the get-go, knew who I thought should publish this book, and I am very good, for some weird reason, of knowing the amount that the book should be preempted for. And I think that's probably from all of my years as being an editor. So it happens, like in the last three books of this nature that I've had, I knew the number. Like they offer, I was like, yeah, that's the number, okay. And then I will tell my client, the writer, the author, I think you should do this. So in Steph's case, we went to the meeting and I said, I am going to look at you with a certain look saying, okay, I'm going to talk to her about a preempt, but I'm going to look at you and you look at me back if you agree. <laughs> and in this case, Steph did. And so after the meeting, uh, you know, again, it's a relationship business, and I love this publisher. I've known her for a long time. I just said, Karen, just, you know, preempt. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to go talk to Jonathan, who's the publisher of HarperCollins right now. I said, good, uh-huh. okay. And she called me back later that day with the exact number I was thinking of, and we closed the deal. <laughs> And it was a nice there you go. number. It was a rare and a nice number. Yes, <laughs> very rare number, very nice. Mm. Okay, so before you became an agent, let's go back to your editor days. What was your first big book success and what did that teach you? That is interesting. I had a very early success. My whole career has been very unique in weird ways, as you know. My first success was a book called Divorce Busting by Michelle Wiener Davis. And it didn't hit the list immediately, but it came on the extended list and stayed there for just forever, for such an incredibly long time. And I published it when I was an editor at Summit Books, which was my third imprint at Simon & Schuster. And I then left Summit. I left Simon & Schuster because I had married the chairman of Simon & Schuster, which I now am no longer married to Simon & Schuster and haven't been for a dozen years, and have two beautiful sons, so it all worked out. But I had to leave Simon, which I loved and still adore as a company, because he was there. So I went to Putnam, and when I was at Putnam, which I absolutely loved and still do, the then publisher of Simon & Schuster called me and wrote me a letter thanking me for giving them 
this author, Michelle Weiner Davis, because divorce busting had made so much money for them. Mm. So it was just really kind of a lovely story all around. And I went to then publish Michelle when I started Golden Books Adult Trade Division, however many years later that it was, which I think was like five. And what did that teach you? What was the second part of that? It taught me that you have to really believe in the book that you are publishing as an editor. And that, I think, has gotten even more clear to editors today. And when I say really believe in, it's not just the message, but it's the writing. Because even today, when I'm on the other side of the fence, I mean, I'm selling something now, and it's an unbelievably gripping story. Narrative nonfiction, memoir. But even the people who are going, wow, this is just an unbelievable story, I've had a few people say, but the writing just didn't pull it in for me, and therefore they're passing on it because they know that if the writing doesn't do it for them, it's not going to do it when they go to that editorial board I was talking about, and it's not going to make it. Yeah. Mm. I love talking. It really stirs up for me, like, how much I love this game. Right, I love the publishing game. It's just, it's so exciting. Okay, your dream client. Describe the characteristics of that dream person. A lot of people come to mind, both good and bad. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know what? Give us the good and bad list. Like a dream client is and a nightmare client is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. A dream client is somebody that is aware of the industry, that knows what it's like today, not how it used to be because it's changed a lot, that is aware at the time limits there are on a relationship because both agents and editors have so much material thrown at them all the time, it's insane. And if they don't understand what that kind of overload is, that they listen to you when you explain it to them and they accept it. So, Mm. for instance, with fiction, you know, it can take months for an agent to give you an answer whether they're going to represent you or not. And then it can take months for editors to come back to you with a response. So a nightmare client is one who's bitching about that. (laughs) And a great client is one who is understanding of that. When you get rejections, a nightmare client is one who refuses to think that maybe it has something to do with their writing or maybe it has something to do with other books that are out there (laughs) in the market. And an angel client is one that goes, you know, thank you so much for trying. I know that it doesn't always fly. It's the way that it goes. Having a dialogue with a client is a dream client, one that really just has a back and forth with you. It doesn't have to all be pleasant. Just one that is open and honest and really can hear what you have to say about what you are trying to do for them and what you are telling them about the industry, which is both good and which is also disheartening, that they can listen. Okay, so without naming names, think back on a diva author that you've worked with, past or Mm -hmm. present. And how did that person inform how you now do your job? I learned that I needed ghostwriters. Oh. Um, (laughs) I don't know why that makes me laugh, but that makes me laugh. Well, this was somebody, oh, this is years ago, (laughs) but I had to hire, um, I was an editor at the time. And I had to hire someone who was currently known as the exorcist to come in because this man who was a who would literally exercise the stories out of divas. 
And this particular diva client really thought that she should be a New York Times bestselling author on her own without any help. And that was going to be very hard because, not ironically, because of her writing ability, but because she just didn't want to divulge everything she needed to divulge. So I had to get the exorcist to come in and help me out. And um, (laughs) that made me... And the diva client had to pay for the exorcist to do that because we, the publisher, had paid her a lot of money. So she had to do that. And that, that was... Not a pleasant time, but it really did work out because she did become, you know, a New York Times bestseller. And I learned that ghostwriters are really critical to a lot of writers for a number of reasons, which often has to do with, frankly, time. Like, I have an angel writer who has done three books with me. One of them is about to come out next week. Mm-hmm. And he, it's his voice that we need, always, you know. But, for instance, she was going to write a novel. And he doesn't have the time. He is a wildly busy person. And so he was like, fine, get a ghost. And I could match him with other authors of mine. But at the end of the day, we decided, no, you know what? You got to do a memoir again or something that's narrative nonfiction. But he was totally open to the idea and we worked with it. And we worked with ghosts that were like thrilled to try it and have it work. And I think maybe the thing that I'm best at as an agent, it sounds like such a Yenta thing, but I really feel that I'm a matchmaker. Yeah. I mean, I really do put a good author and a writer match together. And I think I really do the same with an author and an editor. You know, just figure it out. And I think that's a critical part of the job, you know, on both sides, is being able to match people correctly. Which means that, hello, guys, I have to listen to my clients. I have to be, you know, empathic and really hear what they have to say. (laughs) I think if agents can't do that, they're crappy agents. And they exist, too. So you brought up an interesting point when you talked about the ghostwriters. You know, I've heard all sorts of statistics. I've heard anywhere from 50 to 90% of books are ghostwritten. What do you think, based on your experience, where do you think that number lies? I would say closer to 50, certainly not 90. Mm-hmm. Certainly not 90. Now, granted, I'm not a celebrity-driven agent, and I think that those agents far more often than not, maybe 90% of their list legitimately is ghostwriting. So, you know, that's just not my list. I mean, my list is very memoir and very narrative nonfiction driven. Uh And that is very much more so from the point of view of the actual writer, the author. So for me, I would say 20% of my list is ghosted. Maybe 25%, 25 to 30. I remember somebody calling me one time, Laura. I don't think I ever told you this. Somebody called me. It was when I was a ghostwriter, of which I think there are only about 5,000 in the United States. I'm always trying to steer people towards that career because it's such... It's a great career. It's a great career. It's expanding all the time, and you will always, always be needed. There's There's always so much work if you're good at your craft. But I remember I got a call from an agent at William Morris whose client was a celebrity, and the client was already a many, many New York Times bestselling author and was writing a column, and the column needed a ghostwriter because the ghostwriter that was already doing the celebrities column needed to go off on maternity leave, so they needed me to be the ghostwriter for the ghostwriter for the celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, 
This is the most insane thing I've ever heard, and I don't care what you're offering by way of payment. I would hate my industry if I did this, so i got to go. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> that is so funny, Linda. That is like right up there with the two of us talking about, okay, how weird can you get with your oh, stories? Yeah. That's like right up there, because I've never heard of that before. And honestly, I'm sure it probably happens fairly often. That's so funny. <laughs> it was for Parade so Magazine. I'll give you that, too. That's a little detail. Parade is huge. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that is so funny. Ugh. No, I mean okay. I have clients who aren't ghosts who say, "Laura, can you throw some ghostwriting my way?" Mm-hmm. You know, because they get that it can be a lucrative thing to do. Oh yeah, sure. Okay, you have to say no a lot. So we'd love the stats on, like, you know, how many proposals you get, how often do you say no, and then I'd love for you to talk about how you say no to people. Okay, all interesting questions. And again, I do things differently than a lot of people, so that's both good and bad. I mostly, I would say 95% of my clients are referral-based. And a lot of that is thanks to you guys, so thank you very much. And I hope I do as good a job for you as you do for me. And I know that we work together to sell the crap out of whatever we're trying to sell. (laughs) We do. You know, I'm doing it as hard as I can. I'm trying to sell something now that came over the internet. I've sold, I mean, Bringing Home the Birkin, which is one of, uh, and Michael Tanell, who is a client that I adore, that came over the transom over email because, I mean, who wouldn't pick something up that Bringing Home the Birkin? I was like, oh, my God. But <laughs> generally, I mean, it was just, like, so great. So I will sometimes take something that is sent to me cold, blind, and I will tell writers, all of you out there who might be listening, that the way that I would determine whether I was going to look at something, even look at it, okay? So just the email comes in. Am I even going to look at this? It has to be that what you write to me in your pitch is so well-written and short and to the point and strong in its writing that I go, huh, this is A, really interesting subject, and B, this person can write, okay? Those are the only two things that are going to make me pick something up cold, And then I will look at what you're doing. If not, forget it. And then we have a pretty standard email response that we send to people. And I will send that. And quite honestly, we get so much. And I know, Dan and I are like, what does a lot mean? I can't even tell you because we have a stable of interns that go through all the mail that comes to us, that's submitted to us for submissions. And I don't even see things unless they think that I would be interested. Now, that said, I don't even know how that works totally because there are certainly people that somehow find their way to my other email, Mm -hmm. which I'm not going to tell you, (laughs) you all know it, (laughs) because it's the only one that I use, and so they get to me too. So, like, I don't know, honestly, how many things come in a day because I just don't see them all. I probably see 15 a day on my separate email, so I would assume probably 40 a day if something like that come in. Forty a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yikes. It's crazy. It is crazy. So mm-hmm. it's crazy. It's like getting a kid into college these days. It's crazy. Right. Same thing. 
So how do yes. you personally, just on your 40? <laughs> Actually, yeah. it's harder because you can buy your way into college. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> although, although, let's be honest, you can buy yourself a publishing deal, too. If you promise to buy, you know, 50,000 copies of your own book and you have even halfway decent of a proposal, somebody's going to publish that sucker. Don't think we don't ask as agents, you know, what are you willing to do? You know, every time I have a client who is willing to get freelance publicity and I recommend people that I know that publishers want, I tell them to put that in. If they have a company that's willing to buy that book, the 10,000 or so, I tell them, like, I'm going to use that in my pitch. Well, Laura, remember what we did for uh, Julie Jensen, Essence of a Mother? Right, right. Before I had you sell that, I said to her, you've got to go get sponsors. You've got to go get corporate sponsors. And she was like, what are you talking about? I have MS. I'm in a wheelchair. I can't do that. And I said, you know what? It's easier than you think. And I said, think about who you know. Well, remember, she went to her husband. He worked in a corporation. He got a corporation to promise for you, Laura, when you went to sell it. What? It was like they were going to buy 5,000 copies and sponsor her tour, right? Yes, and they were putting out DVDs to to sell with the book. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. What is different about the industry now? I mean, publishing, and I'm sure you've heard this ad nauseum, but publishing has become somewhat like the music industry. What happened to them? Because of digital publishing and blogging, people just don't buy books as much as they used to. They simply don't, and they want shorter books than they used to because our attention spans are so much shorter than they used to be. And passion used to be the one thing, frankly, that drove this industry. I mean, when I was an editor, I could sit and dance on a tabletop, you know, at an ed board or at a sales conference or just, you know, not literally, well, close to it, though, you know, and just say, I love this, you know, blah, 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 this is why. And I could get that book sold. You know, and I could sell my colleagues on it. Today, unless an author has a platform, it doesn't matter how fabulous they are. It doesn't matter. If you don't have a platform, it's going to be hard. I mean, I'm sorry to say that so bluntly, but it's just the fact of the matter. If you can't give me ammunition to sell you with, it's hard. And that's because publishers need the ammunition. I remember telling a client once, Literally that. I said, you know, you have to sell your book now. The publisher wants to know what you have to do. And they they took me literally. And I was like, oh, my God, no, I didn't mean that literally. No, they really will sell your book. Don't worry. They have sales reps. <laughs> they do this. But they really do need ammunition. Also, again, the quantity of how much is being written today. If I get 40 things a day, think how much well, an editor gets a day, you know? And I'll say real quickly before Danielle goes to her next question, I do always still advise people, even if their platform is small, to still write the hell out of a great book and give as much ammunition as they can. Like I'm thinking of Closer Than You Think, Deborah Henehan, which was published with Canary Press, who, you know, even the Dalai Lama has done books with Canary Press. They do beautiful stuff. She had almost no platform, and I just said, look, if you're going to write a book about talking to the other side, get your grief counseling certificate, put up a website, teach a telecourse, start putting yourself out there in the world as an expert on grief and how to talk to the other side. And we got her a deal, and it was pretty easy. We just followed certain steps. And I've seen you do that, Laura, with some of my clients. You can still follow certain steps to get to the smaller publishers. Obviously, they want a platform, but they will help you. It's more like you're getting a partner in the platform building. As long as you come to the table with something beautiful, and at least you're on your way, you don't have to have 60,000 opt-ins. Not always, right? Totally. And I'll give you a very strong example of that. 
One of my dearest friends and fiction clients, by the way, I'm not taking any more fiction on because I find it so hard to publish. And by the way, I don't want to scare novelists off. It's just that I'm half blind. So it takes me a long time to read, which yeah. in terms of all this months and months and months stuff, just add a half blind agent to it and take you like another month or two. <laughs> so anyway. Although you're extremely that, fast, i got to say. When you're motivated, you. as long as it's not oh, no, a massive read, you true. are so fast. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. And everybody has always said that that's true. But Michael Woolman has written 22 books. If you're a foodie, you know exactly who he is. He sold over 2.5 million books, okay? Well over. He's Soul of a Chef, The Making of a Chef. He's Thomas Keller's writer. But he's written tons and tons of books. But he's always wanted to write fiction. And I told him, you know, years ago that it was not good and he couldn't write an editor. And then he decided to this year, and I said, you know, you can now. This is good. And Reynolds Price was his mentor, and Reynolds died, blah, blah, blah. So I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get a big house to take him on. And I also thought, you know, what we really want going here is a partnership. I mean, he has an eight-book nonfiction deal with Little Brown, okay? And the CAA represents him now, nonfiction. And he just wanted me to do his fiction. And so I partnered him with Skyhorse, which they publish a ton of books, but they're a small independent press. And he said to me at BEA, they had him signing at BEA last week. And he said, Laura, this is so great. He said, I am so much happier as opposed to being with Little Brown for my fiction. And that's exactly the point is I wanted a partnership because he's going to be he's a huge author for them to try and sell the hell out of. And, you know, he took small money with much bigger royalties to be a partnership with someone who would think of it that way and publish him that way. So being with a small press is not at all necessarily a bad thing. Not at all. Right. All right. This is the time in the interview where we take an intermission and we do a quick multiple choice. <laughs> Laura, gold or silver? Am I gold or choose. silver? No. Yeah, choose. What's your preference? Preference. <laughs> oh, silver. Silver. <laughs> silver. Okay. 80s rock or 70s folk? 80s rock. <laughs> that was hard. Milk though. chocolate or dark chocolate? Milk chocolate. Uh, digital or pen and ink? Or pen uh, and paper? Pen and ink. Pen and ink. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so paper or Kindle? Paper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I was half blind and I didn't know it, and somebody gave me a Kindle, and I was like, no, I don't want to. You know, I didn't know I was half blind. I was like, I want to read a book. I want to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> so Kindle help you discover that you're half blind? No, I had no short-term memory for two months because I had a horrible accident that made me half blind. So you had a horse accident, story. I should yeah. say. Yeah. I was in a coma. It's a long story. <laughs> but anyway, um, I didn't know that I was half blind. And I was like, something's in my eye. Something's in my eye. Why do I have Kindle? I want a book. And I was like, it was ridiculous. I couldn't read. But uh, now I read both happily. I'm happy to have a Kindle. Digital's good. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. It's like books better. So, Laura, you... All right, Linda, you can get you, serious again. You, yeah, this is serious. So, you really surprised me one time, and I guess we should give a little backstory. So, I had a client, had come to Carmel, one of the best stories I had ever heard. Fame was involved, a lot of drama, a lot of sadness. I put her with a writer who I knew could nail it from a movie standpoint, a Hollywood writer, because I felt like it was a movie. Laura, you loved it, and you got involved, and... Something was going on with the writer. So the writer's agent was being a pain in the butt. And so there were two agents involved, you and the other agent. And the agent that you were dealing with didn't answer 
a very key important question in this whole sales process. Didn't answer a question for a couple of days. And you were pissed. And you were like, Linda, I was trained by the best in the business. You have to answer your emails every single day right away. And I was like, whoa, because in my world, you know, sometimes I don't answer an email right away. Like, I just can't. You know, I'm trying to write a book. i got to stay in book writing mode. Emails just completely screw me up sometimes. But you gave me a little bit of an ass-kicking through this other well, this agent. This is so horrible because I'm like, oh, my God. I would still do it again, by the way, except I don't remember doing it. But oh it was great God. because what you taught me was that when you're in business, and I'm still trying to learn this because, you know, my inbox can be hundreds of emails a day. I don't know that I'll ever get good at this. And even my assistant can't handle it. So we're always trying to figure this out. But you really gave me a schooling in the difference between sort of old school mentality on getting back to people and the newer, more vague way. And you're old school. So I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a look at that old school mentality, which I think is part of the fundamentals of business that's easy to forget now. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, I am. I think that's absolutely right, which is why I say paper and pen and ink. I mean, I am old school because I'm 51 and I was taught to be old school. But I think if you can hold to that, it's very helpful. You know, you said to me, oh, Laura, you're fast when you're motivated. And I am, and I'm known to be fast. And I think to recognize how hard writers are trying to get things published and to treat them with respect and get back to them as much as you can. It's manners, but I think it's nice. I mean, I'm working with a good friend of mine who's written a novel, and actually I'm not selling it. As I said, I've given her to my best friend who sells the novel, but I've been going back and helping her, and she said, you know, it's amazing because I would email her things saying, I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to whatever. She goes, you're so good at that. You're so good at just checking in. And I wasn't doing that because she was my friend. I was doing that because I know that writers are sitting there going, oh, my God, why haven't I heard from this person? Oh, my God, why haven't I? And I just think to the extent that you can respond, you should. I mean, look, not every editor always responds to me, and it pisses me off. I mean, I just don't (laughs) think it's that hard to sit there and say, I'm not interested in this. It's a quick email. You know, why do I have to track someone down to find that out? But in this day and age, that's the way it goes because, again, people get so much stuff thrown at them on a daily basis. They're like you, Linda, and like me. They don't have time. So to the extent that you can make time, you really need to try to do that because it makes the writer feel better. And I think in this industry, to make a writer feel better is a nice thing to do. Mm, It's love. It's just love and kindness. It's the right thing to do. Best advice. It's the best advice that somebody gave you along the way, mentor, collaborator, colleague, about creating bestsellers. Again, this is probably an offbeat answer, but when I think of a bestseller, I think of books that are, and then I think of the books that I wanted to be that were good enough to be, that really were amazing and weren't. And I remember the chairman of Putnam mm-hmm. saying, well, it's not your fault. And if you always think you're doing the wrong thing, should I wish I'd known that was your neurosis when you worked for me? I could have helped you because <laughs> <laughs> we're still very good friends. But I just think whether it is a bestseller or it's not a bestseller, there are so many variables in this industry that you cannot control that all you can do, whether you're the author or you're the editor or the agent, is keep trying and doing your best. 
and just putting all your effort into it and believing in the book. I mean, I really think it comes down to that, and it will work or it won't work. But all you can do is give it everything you've got. And if you have a team that's doing that, if you've got an agent that's working, you know, you believe that agent is doing. I mean, I just got an email from an author last night saying, Laura, whatever happens, I know that I'm in the best hands I could possibly be in. And I wrote her back and I said, thank you. And I said, hey, rejections come first. We've got this out there with a slew of people. This is early days, you know, and I believe in the book and I believe it's going to sell. But that's all you can do. And for bestsellers, you can hope for it and pray for it. And maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. You know, it just, there's so many variables. So what you're saying Mm. from a woo-woo standpoint is that every book has its own destiny. Yeah. From a woo-woo standpoint, I'm totally saying that. I think that's true. I mean, as editorially minded as I am, I'm still surprised by books that don't work that I think are going to. You know, mm-hmm. and I mean, I have a book coming out next week, and it's coming up with problems, not because of itself, but because there's another book that is on a similar topic that's hitting the list that's out now, oh, and that God. book is going to take sales away from my book. And we see that all you the know? time in movies here in Hollywood. That happens all the time, and you know, it looks like the company that's coming out with a medieval story a la Game of Thrones, it looks like they copied them. But in reality, when you go back and you talk to the players, they were writing them at the same time. They were selling them at the same time. And it just so happens one got out before the other. I mean, that happens all the time. It's like in the zeitgeist. Yeah, it does. And it's enormously frustrating. I mean, going back to the perfect author, the angel authors, or the hard authors, when something like that happens... An angel author is one that goes, this sucks, but, you know, it's nobody's fault. I'm frustrated by it, but I know everybody's trying. And a horrible author is one that blames the publisher or whatever. Look, sometimes publishers don't do everything you want them to do. That happens all the time, and I will definitely call them on that. But a lot of times that's just not the case, you know, and things happen. All right, Dee, you want to cue up our last Mm -hmm. one here? Uh, This is our last question. What's your song that still must be sung? So it's like your own creativity, your own project. Like you really want to do this before you're done. Mm, juicy. Oh, my God. Why is nothing coming into my mind? Well, for whatever reason, to take that literally, all I can say is I think of Carly Simon. <laughs> Just wow. Carly Simon comes to mind pretty much anything she would sing. Why do I think that? Why do I, what is it about that? <laughs> Uh, I go and you haven't got time for the pain. It's all about <laughs> anticipation. I know. I'm just here. Anticipation. <laughs> I know exactly. Anywhere you guys go. Well, you know what, Laura? You get there. Knowing you, I would say that one of the gifts of your getting thrown off that horse and being in that coma for as long as you were and having been resurrected is that you're very much in the moment. So maybe that's yes, your answer. I think, yeah, I think that's very, very true. And for a lot of reasons, I very much am. And I certainly would hope, as hard as it is, that people writing can stay in the moment and not let anticipatory anxiety take over their work. Mm-hmm. Because writing is such a wonderful and fun thing. And again, I was emailing an author about this yesterday who's written a book that sold two and a half million copies. And is writing something different now and is being stuck on it. And I just said, you know, you're such a good writer that just enjoy that right now. Enjoy writing because it's such a beautiful thing to be able to do 
that just enjoy it. You know, getting published is not the be-all and the end-all. It may seem like it, and it can be, and it can be a great way to enhance your platform. It can be the start of all sorts of incredible things, even from a little teeny publisher. It can lead to tons of great things. But if you don't enjoy writing in the moment while you're doing it, you're wasting your time. Because this is not an industry to go into to become famous or to do for money. I mean, people who, like, say, well, I can't quit my job. I thought you were going to get me that kind of advance. I'm like, where in the world did you think that you, you know, hello, what century are you living in? (laughs) I love Liz Gilbert's vow that she's just put in her new book, Big Magic. But the vow that she made to herself originally as a writer, which was, I vow to the art, and I vow to take care of the art. I can go work a restaurant job anywhere, but I vow not to expect the art to take care of me. I will take care of the art. Well, look at how it's taking care of her, right? Yeah, right. Hello, people. (laughs) It's exactly right, though. And I'm sure, you know, from a rural point of view, I'm sure there is something to that, too. Yeah. You know? I really do. I really think just stay present in your work and love writing. Love it. And, you you know, you will get rewards. Who knows how far those rewards will go, but you'll get them. I love you, girls. Thank you. This was super fun. This, this was, was really so fun. juicy, Laura. I I know that everybody <laughs> that listens to this is hanging on everywhere. They're like, oh, it, this just really, it's so inside scoop. It's golden. Thank you so much. Oh, good. <laughs> I love you guys. Take care. <laughs> love you too. Bye, sweetie. Mm-hmm. Okay, bye. To hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on.